And we're going to read from Genesis 1, verse 31 through 2-3. And Rich is going to lead us. All right. God saw... Oh, sorry. <laughs> God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Okay, so we have now finally made it to Genesis chapter 2. And if you're just joining us, we're taking 30 weeks to study through this book of Genesis. And we're taking a few breaks in between, but these first several weeks we're kind of taking slow because Genesis 1 and 2, they tell the whole story about why God created the universe and what his design plan for the creation is all about. And these chapters, in many ways, are like setting the trajectory for the entire Bible. And so we want to pay really, really close attention and take a little bit more time on these first few chapters. And last week, if you remember, if you were here, we talked about day six of creation, when humans finally show up in the story, and we're given the Bible's answer to that age-old question, what does it mean to be human? And it turns out uh, it's really good to be human. Uh, We're made in the image of God. We're in the language of Genesis Uh, kings and priests of creation, which is God's dwelling, or as we talked about, his cosmic temple that he created so that we could be in relationship with him and to even enjoy his divine hospitality. We're also given purpose. We're created to rule with God and to take care of the earth. That's a direct quote from verse 28. So if you remember, that means that we are designed to rule like God with love and wisdom and justice and righteousness. And our job is to, to borrow some language from Tim Keller, to harness the raw potential of planet Earth creatively so that everyone and everything can flourish and thrive. So some people do this very directly, like the people who farm. They pull food out of the Earth to nourish the community. But other people devote themselves to nursing, like rich, or education. And they're using their energy and their skill to like meet the needs of the community as well. So what all of that means is that we're not here to just like crank out widgets or to quote, make a living. We're here to contribute to human flourishing. I spoke with a guy after the gathering last Sunday who said, I feel like different and empowered about my work now. Our company, he was telling me, reduces natural gas emissions when it's being extracted and refined. That's brilliant. That's ruling and taking care of the earth the way that God would want it done while fueling humans at the same time. That's the cultural mandate. That's exactly what we're talking about. So he's playing his part. The question is, will we play ours in creating culture in a way that honors God? But now, for today's text, we need to get into sort of the imagination, if you will, of the ancient Hebrew poet. Because there's no, uh, there's, uh, excuse me, there's more to this section than meets the eye, and especially if 
uh, we don't know what we're looking for. So to illustrate this, I want to just share with you a piece of poetry that came out of our 24-7 prayer room, and it was anonymously written into the pages of our unanswered prayer journal. So I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, you have been like living in my brain all week. I don't know if that was your goal, but that's what happened. And I'm not mad about it. It's actually an insanely good poem. And uh, so here's one stanza from that poem that was anonymously written into our prayer journal. Uh, I can't stop thinking about it. Here here it goes. It says, uh, Celestial poet, lover of beauty and broken things, grand composer, transforming dissonant notes into melodies, masterful architect, sculptor, linguist, Gardener and healer. You guys need to go to some more poetry readings. They always snap after a poetry reading. Anyways, super, super good and actually kind of infuriating because that inspired me to like try my hand at poetry and I made it like 10 minutes and what I came up with looked like a fourth grader had done it and so I just gave up. But good poetry like this grips you because it has rhythm and rhyme scheme and clever wordplay. And even though it's only like 30 words or whatever that is, it carries a very powerful message because the symbolism in the pauses and in the word choice, it evokes more than just the sum of the words themselves. That's what good poetry does. And that's exactly what's going on in Genesis 2. Moses, who's the author here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has been carefully presenting and planning the cadence and rhythm and word choice of his poem to come to this crescendo right here in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, I briefly mentioned this before a few weeks ago. Scholars agree that the most prominent literary feature of Genesis 1 and 2 is the author's use of seven. So like Shakespeare and other modern poets would use iambic pentameter, God in Genesis uses the number seven. So here are the sevens, again, uh, just by way of review. There are seven words in Genesis 1-1. There are seven paragraphs, one for each day. There are seven, uh, the words light, day, living creatures, and God said that it is good are all repeated seven times. The words God, land, and sky are repeated by multiples of seven, either 25 or 32. And there are seven days of creation. So you might be thinking to yourself at this point, all right, dude, you and the author of that poem can like get together and have a good time with that. But what is this supposed to mean for us? And that's a fair question. Um, It's trying to tell us something really important. Pay attention to day seven. Pay special attention to day seven. Days one through six, all of God's creative power and all of his bringing order out of chaos and his structuring of the different cosmic domains and his breathing life into all of the living creatures, all of that creating is leading to a dramatic conclusion on day seven. And this is where the whole poem or the whole account is leading and has been pointing towards. Now, it's well established that uh, seven symbolizes wholeness or completeness. It's the sense that all is at peace in the world. But what is it actually that's happening on day seven? What actually happens? Well, this is what the scripture says. On the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Might kind of hit you a little bit off guard, like God got tired and decided to take a nap, like that's what happened, and that's what this has all been pointing to? No, that's not it at all. After six days, God had completed his work, 
and he stopped to rest and enjoy the good world that he had made. And all of the symbols and the clues in the text are guiding us to this idea that God is building into the fabric of creation a sacred rhythm of work and rest. So he's saying six days of work is enough, and day seven is a day of rest and delight in God and in what he's made. And we're going to be getting into why this is such a profound and countercultural reality in just a moment. But first, just a definition of terms. The seventh day is later, as most of you know, called Sabbath, or in Hebrew, Shabbat. And it literally means to stop, to cease, or to be done. And according to the scriptures, and really, I think probably uh, marketers and advertisers everywhere, we long for Sabbath rest, like deep within our souls. We ache for this sense of peace. And even if we're like avoiding it or we don't know how, we long to like put down the, the tools of our work, like the shovel or our work email or whatever, and to take a breather to just enjoy the goodness of God and what he's made. Next, it says that God blessed the seventh day meaning that he has special affection for the seventh day. He's given it like a special divine favor type place. And then finally it says he made it holy or kadash. And it means Shabbat is sacred. Shabbat is set apart. Shabbat is unique by divine inspiration and intention. So it's no coincidence that God has made everything and he calls everything that he's made good. He says at the end of day one, it's good. At the end of day two, good, 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 good. Day six, very good. Day seven, he calls it holy. Day seven is sacred, right? That's saying something very important about this day of rest. Now, I just want to point out something painfully obvious that we just read, and that is this. God Sabbathed. Like, think, think about how often so many of us have read these passages or whatever, but we've never stopped to think about the reality that God Sabbathed. And I get it because I tend to be pretty type A and sort of a high-capacity person. We like to think of ourselves we're like, yeah, I understand. Some people like to take a load off or to rest or whatever, but that logic doesn't really hold up because God Sabbathed. You might be thinking to yourself, you know what? I'm much more of kind of a doer. I've got a lot going on in my life right now. Yeah, but... God Sabbathed. I've got little kids at home and I'm starting a business or whatever. Yes, of course, but God Sabbathed. God the creator stopped. And in doing this, he was essentially, it's not because he was tired or overworked or whatever, it was because he was building into the fabric of creation a rhythm, a sacred rhythm of work and rest. So we work for six days and then on Sabbath we stop for one day. Think about it. This is where our seven-day week comes from. I think it's fascinating and comes as no surprise that every single society in the history of human civilization has been built around a seven-day week, even though the week is the one unit of time in our world that's not tied to, like the movement of the stars or something like that. So, for example, the day is tied to a, the 24-hour rotation of the, of, of the earth. The month is tied to the moon's lunar cycle. The year is tied to the earth's journey around the sun. So why a seven-day week? Well, because it's built around God's own life rhythm. Six days of work, one day of rest. Now, um, some of my research on, on Sabbath, it's fascinating. During the French Revolution, the powers that be at the time, they attempted a 10-day week. 
And they attempted the 10-day week because they wanted to increase productivity. But it actually had the reverse effect. Productivity plummeted, and worse, it led to a mental health crisis and even a rise in suicide, right? So in the modern West, we are attempting a similar failed experiment as the French Revolution, but we're doing it all over again. And it's not because the government is imposing on us a 10-day week or something like that, but because we're disregarding the sacred rhythm that's been laid out for us in the scripture, and we're deciding to make other things holy besides what God has said is holy. So in our society, we've made being always on or being always connected holy. We've made productivity, busyness, it means status and importance. Those things we hold as sacred or as holy, not the seventh day. And in the digital age, we've thrown out any kind of rhythm at all. The smartphone, electricity, the car, alarm clock, things like this. They have created a world where we go and we go and we go and we never stop. But that is against the grain of human nature and the rhythm that God has built into uh, us and creation. God created the human body, the planet itself, to live inside a rhythm of seven days, six of work, one of rest. Now, um, there is uh, this rhythm between day and night, waking and sleeping. There's also tidal rhythm that the whole earth, the whole world is subject to. And then, of course, even within our own bodies, we have this rhythm of inhaling and exhaling as we breathe. And I think that technology and the digital era is bent towards getting you to defy those rhythms and with it lose a part of your humanity. Now, I'm not saying that the creators of social media or iPhone were like malicious supervillains or something like that, or even that they knew the havoc that their technology would cost us on a human level when this whole experiment began. But their technology has come to life in a cosmology or a, an explanation of the world where status and productivity and being always connected is holy. And the rhythm of God's own life that he built into creation itself and our very souls is not holy. The philosopher H.H. Farmer once said this, that when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. It's a good line. And that's true, of course, on the negative side. When you don't Sabbath, you suffer. Your, your family suffers, your body, your health, your mental health, it all suf suffers. You burn out, you get stressed out, you have brain fog or broken relationships or whatever. But it's also true on the positive end that when we Sabbath, we actually reap the reward of Sabbath. Um, historians tell a story about pioneers traveling the Oregon Trail. And uh, winter was approaching, and there was a traveling party that was divided about what to do about the impending winter. So they broke up into two groups. The first group was like stressed out about being on the road in winter. And so they traveled seven days a week without fail because they wanted to get to Oregon as soon as humanly possible. But then the other group was determined to stop on the seventh day and celebrate Sabbath. Can anyone predict what happened? It was actually the group that stopped and Sabbath on the seventh day. They actually made it there before the first group that traveled seven days a week, which is fascinating. And also, uh, later in Scripture, we understand that this is why God has commanded Sabbath for those who follow after him. Uh, if you look at uh, Exodus chapter 20, it's going to be on the screen behind me. It says this, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
And on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." So there you have it. It is a basically retelling of the Genesis account, but this is right here in the smack dab middle of the Ten Commandments. In fact, more real estate is given to this command, the fourth command in the Ten Commandments, than any of the other commandments. And uh, John Mark Comer has done a great mini-series on this. Um, He points out that Sabbath is like the only commandment in the Ten Commandments that we actually brag about breaking which I think is so fascinating. Like he points out that even in like the moral decay of the West, people don't brag about lying. They don't brag about having affairs or anything like that. But people do brag about how many days in a work or how many days in a week that they've worked or how many emails or whatever they've done on the weekend. Because again, in our culture, busyness and overwork, it's a sign of social status. It's a sign of how high we've climbed on the ladder. But this is not what God has designed us for from the beginning, and creation is telling a much different story that we need to live into. Meaningful work does not mean that you become a slave to work. Meaningful work does not mean you become a slave to work, which is an important point for us, but even more so probably to the original audience in Genesis. As you probably remember or know by now, that Genesis is detailing the very beginning, but it's actually written generations, like a long time after the beginning. It was written when Moses was alive, and it was to the people of Israel, either right before they were freed and made it into the promised land, or or, uh, right after they made it into the wilderness. So they are literally a group of people who've spent their entire lives as slaves. And so... Many scholars point out that Genesis 1 and 2 and Exodus 20 was like God's way of rewiring and reforming a community of people who'd been conditioned their whole lives to just make bricks seven days a week so that an egomaniacal king could make an opulent shrine to himself. And the reframing and the rewiring was this reality that God himself is not a slave driver. That's not who God is. His vision for humans is to thrive and to flourish in relationship with him. And this motif has made it all the way through to the teachings and the life of Jesus, who says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The God who created everything is not a slave driver. He's guiding you into flourishing. Now, um, it's true and um, relevant that for many of us, we've grown up in an age where we are debating whether or not the Sabbath is still like a binding command for Jesus followers because we mainly see it in the Old Testament, particularly in the Ten Commandments and Genesis and things like that. And there are, by the way, wise, Jesus-loving people who fall on all kinds of different sides of this debate. But for me, I think asking whether or not we have to keep the Sabbath is an exercise in missing the point. It's about as helpful as asking if we have 
to keep the laws of physics. Like we can go against them if we choose to, but we're going to end up being on the wrong side of it eventually. Even if the Sabbath is no longer binding for us, it's still very wise for us to live into. Wayne Moeller, who's a theologian, put it like this, the Sabbath is not a burdensome requirement from some law-giving deity. You ought to, you better, you must but rather it's a remembrance of a law that is firmly embedded into the fabric of nature. And it's a reminder of how things really are, the rhythmic dance to which we unavoidably belong. Which I, I, I completely agree with that statement. Jesus also says something very similar in Mark chapter two. The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Now Jesus' audience uh, was warped, and they had warped Sabbath because they had added a bunch of rules around it and stuff like that. But we need to hear this, this exhortation all the same. The Sabbath was made for people. Now, we don't have like any rules around Sabbath, um, so we're, we're different from the first century where Jesus was addressing. But we do spend a lot of our off days like doing a bunch more like unpaid work, like paying the bills or working on the house or whatever, or we binge TV, or we do go out and enjoy creation or something like this, but we're doing it without actually delighting in God. And into that sort of cultural framework, I think the promise is that long before Sabbath was like one of the 10 commandments, it is a gift blessed by God from him to all of us and to all of creation, from a generous king who actually loves his people. One more scripture, and then we're going to wrap up here. Matthew chapter 12, uh, in verse 18, Jesus is responding to the religious elites who are accusing him and his followers of breaking some of the minutiae of the Sabbath. And he responds to them in this way. He says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is claiming to be the author of life's essential rhythms and that he is giving it to you, not as like a pious religious ladder to climb, but as a gift to your soul, which is why the scripture commands us to remember the Sabbath, to remember it and to keep it holy. So what is it that we're remembering when we keep the Sabbath? Well, on the Sabbath, we remember that this is God's world. He's the creator. Everything that he's made is good. We remember that there is a rhythm in creation. We remember to stop, when we're, not when we're finished, because we're never finished. There's always more work to be done. But we stop when the rhythm that God built into creation tells us that it's time to stop. And we also remember that we're not what we do or what other people say about us or what we're able to produce. We are who God says that we are. And this is one of the reasons why many of us, maybe even myself, resist practicing Sabbath because we fear when we stop, what emotions, what, what things will come rushing to the surface? What if I'm not producing anything? What if I'm not as productive as I want to be or whatever? Or what if I'm not performing? So Sabbath, Sabbath is this weekly holiday. It's an act, as John Mark calls it, an act of identity formation where we say, I am actually not what I do. I am who God says I am. I am a daughter or I am a son of the Most High God. So during Sabbath, we're reminding ourselves of that true identity and we're living into the gift, really, that God has given us. Again, uh, we may also remember that, of course, the world is full of evil and injustice and all kinds of things like that, but it's also filled with a lot of beauty and a lot of goodness still. 
And we remember that we owe it to God to be grateful to him and to be full of joy in the world. One of the greatest gifts that I think God gives those of us who Sabbath and those of us who practice his presence is just the ability to locate gratitude in our hearts. Despite all of the things in our lives that we wish were different, we still can find gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts. Not because everything's perfect, but because God is still good in a very imperfect place in which we live. So when you keep the Sabbath, it's way more than just a day to like recharge your batteries. It's a day of rest where we cultivate a spirit of restfulness in all of our lives. And we begin to experience things that we desperately need, like peace and margin and enjoyment of beauty. That's part of what it is to be human, is to enjoy beauty. And we experience gratitude among many, many other things. So as we close, I just want to be perfectly honest and frank with you that Sabbath is one of those practices that is quite hard for me to, to submit to and to, be, uh, to do um, with any kind of regularity. And it's because of how I'm wired. I'm extremely type A, and I like to be productive. And so honestly, in the first hour or two of Sabbath, I'm just like thinking about what I can get done. I'm just, just very interested in what I can get done. But also, uh, my life stage makes it really hard to really truly Sabbath well. Like, for example, just the last two months, I traveled for a couple of weeks out of the country, and while I was traveling, I wasn't really able to set my own schedule. And then also, we've had like just a ton of family commitments this month. All good things, like our extended family. This is the month of birthdays, where there's like tons of birthdays all the time. So there's been like lots of baking cupcakes and like target runs and stuff like that. Um, and it's all, again, great stuff, but for most of us, like 12 kids like sprinting around the house is not a version of Sabbath. It's not really restful. Um, we've also had a lot of sickness, as I know a lot of you guys have. Like our, our kids keep getting sick. It's every single week there's something new that they've gotten. And then also we, a lot of the people that we love, there's several people in our lives that we love that are in crisis right now. And caring for them doesn't always like fall neatly into my work days. And last night, for example, I cut my, my Sabbath like a few hours short because I had to finish this message on Sabbath. So like I, I'm, I'm hearing the irony as I say that. So I, I say all that to say this is, this is an area where the Lord is inviting me and our family to grow. And I'm beginning to feel some weariness of overwork. I'm beginning to feel that. And don't worry, I'm not like about to burn out or anything like that. That's not the point. But I am starting to feel not God's anger or disappointment in me. I'm not at like danger of being kicked out of the family of God or something like that. Um, and by the way, I'm more enthusiastic about our work here than probably ever in my life. But I haven't been living into or really embracing the rhythm of God's own life these last like two months. And it's actually starting to affect my spirit. I'm more impatient. I'm not sleeping as well. I'm not as healthy as I want to be. I have more brain fog than I'd like to have. And all of that is directly connected to the loving, guided rhythm of work and rest that God has laid out for us in the scripture. And more than that, and this is the thing that's a little bit more concerning to me, is when I don't practice Sabbath, I'm showing my kids and my family that I'm actually trusting in myself and my ability to get things done, that things actually depend on me, rather than enjoying and delighting in the life that God has given us by his grace. And that is an important thing that I want to correct for our kids. 
And when we do practice Sabbath, it is a joy. We love it. Our kids look forward to it. It's a holiday. We celebrate every single week, and they really feel that way about it. Our kids absolutely love it. Another quick story, a friend of mine who's um, here at, at Riverbend, uh, we've been connecting a lot lately because he's trying to make a transition in his life, and he desperately wants to live out this vision of Sabbath rest. But given their family's life circumstances, it just feels like it's an impossibility for their family. He and his wife are both working these really intense, high-paced jobs with tons of hours. Both of their jobs are like really meaningful jobs. They serve our community. And they're not like as many people who work in these types of roles. They don't really get paid enough to do it. And so... uh, they, they're working like opposite schedules as well because they have three young kids. So like he's working in the daytime and then they have like an hour and a half to like pass the baton and then, then she goes to work at night and it's just nuts. And so they have these super thin margins in their life right now. Just listening to him tell us about his life is like exhausting, let alone living it. And he's not complaining, blaming God about to blow up his life or something like that. But he is like recognizing how difficult his life is right now and he's beginning to like add up his time and look creatively at his rhythms and his budget and he's saying, you know what, this pace that I'm going at, it's inhuman and it doesn't sustain. It's not workable for the long haul so we need to make some kind of a change. And so currently what they're considering is actually, actually taking a pay cut sacrificing a bit of income in order to honor the rhythm that God has given us in our bodies. And he's a super smart, really, really sharp guy. And he's making a faith decision to live on a little bit less so that he can Sabbath, rest, and make, keep it holy, uh, both for himself and for his family. So for a lot of us, Sabbath isn't just going to happen. We have to prioritize it. We have to make it happen by changing the rhythms to be in rhythm, in step with the rhythm that God has given, um, given his people and given creation. So I guess both my story and my buddy's story, I compare that to your life. What about you? What does your lifestyle say is holy to you? What does your lifestyle say is holy to you? Is the ladder at work holy? Or is the mountain holy? Now, there's, of course, nothing wrong with pursuing a promotion or loving to snowboard or whatever. The question is, when push comes to shove, what's holy to you? What's sacred? What will you not give up? And what's beautiful about God, again, is he's not a slave driver. He's uh, keeping God's rhythm of life holy. It doesn't make you a slave. It actually makes you someone who's deeply loved by God. And he's like inviting you to delight and to enjoy him. So keeping what God says is holy, holy, is like the rest of his design. It's for relationship with him, and it's for your good. So I just want to give you a few uh, things to get started, or in my case, like reprioritize, so that you can begin practicing Sabbath again. So keeping the Sabbath looks a couple of different ways. It's, first of all, stopping from all work, paid and unpaid, for a 24-hour period every single week. Our family, um, we do this from Friday evening to Saturday evening. And, um, and next, it, it, in my case, and I think this is probably true of most of us because our work is connected to our tech, I recommend that you actually completely disconnect from technology. Uh, put, a phone, put your phone in the drawer so that you're not even tempted to like, look at notifications or whatever. And then uh, next, you just do something really life-giving to you. 
Maybe that's hanging out with friends, climbing at Smith Rock, enjoying a great meal, playing a game with family, reading a good book. If you're an introvert, maybe you need to like introvert out for several hours, whatever. And while you just enjoy doing something that's life-giving, delight in God. I'll end with this. On Friday night, um, a bunch of us, about 35 or so of us guys, we went snowshoeing. And we went up to Virginia Meisner at night, went snowshoeing into the, uh, up to this little uh, like hut, and we had a time of worship and prayer and conversation. And like at least 10 times, I'd have a guy come up to me and be like, wow, this is just so great. I haven't had fellowship like this in a long time. I haven't taken a moment to just pause and look up at the stars. We're out in the beauty of God's creation. That is, my friends, what Sabbath can look like for you. It's not something that's like ultra pious, that's only reserved for the super religious or something like that. It's for all of us. It's connecting in community um, for those of us who delight in that kind of stuff. And then it's just enjoying God in the midst of the life-giving activities that he has given us to enjoy. Make sense? Let's do it together as a church. Okay, let's stand and let's pray together. Father, we uh, just want to say thank you so much for how you have been at work in our church this week and over these last 10 days as we um, just faithfully pray and seek your face in the prayer room. And we just want to say that we long for more of you. I love to see this spirit coming awake in you, church this spirit of hunger and desire for God. There's something about the last couple of years that has woken some of us up that our life plan and the things we always dream for ourselves apart from a vibrant relationship with Jesus will just not do. And so what he's doing right now in the church over these weeks is he's awakening that in us. He's shaking it loose in us. He's breaking down walls of apathy and cynicism and unbelief. And he's reconstructing something beautiful where we seek him, where you seek him with all of your heart. The scripture says that you will, you, uh, when you seek him, you will find him when you seek him with all of your heart. The qualifier is all. And that's what the prayer room and rhythms like Sabbath are for. Everyone at your workplace would totally understand if you just decided to push through and not stop. They might even give you applause for that. But we recognize what God has built into the fabric of creation itself, that we work we meaningfully work, but on the seventh day, we stop and we rest. And that rest is to enjoy the good things that you have made and to connect with you and to live restfully from that place all throughout our week. And so God, I just pray that each and every one of us would internalize this, this, this hope that we have. We're not slaves. And we're not just destined to go out there, make bricks and bring home some kind of living. But that you have given us this world and relationship with you to delight in and to enjoy. Let's just take a moment 
And in the quiet of this moment, just to locate in your heart gratitude and maybe even delight. Garden of Eden, which we're talking about next week, is the garden of delight. Eden is Hebrew for delight. That's what God has for you. So what are you most grateful for? What are you delighting in today? This thought that just came to mind, I don't know if it's from the spirit or not, but I'm just, as I'm praying for you, I just feel like the Lord is saying that he wants to bring resilient hope. Resilient hope is this idea that, um, yeah, there are friends of ours and family who we have broken relationship with or are deathly sick. And if we fixated on the wrong things, we would actually just um, lose all hope. But the beauty of Sabbath rest and the beauty of seeking God's face in the prayer room is about choosing to fix our eyes on the things that Jesus says our eyes should be fixed on. And so God is resurrecting hope in you today. For some of you who've gone a while without it, I just want to encourage you to do exactly what the scriptures say, fix your eyes on Jesus. That's a visualization, like turn your eyes to Jesus. Imagine what his eyes is, are like, what his countenance is like, how he's coming to you. Just receive his beautiful embrace. Notice him coming down off of the throne of heaven and just enveloping you in his comforting love and holding you close. I know that for some of you, this feels so out of place or whatever, but the scripture is filled with metaphor and symbol like this. That God is a God who runs and pursues after us with his love. And as we sit, stand here delighting in him, we are reminded of all of that goodness. And so God, I just pray very humbly not that there's anything special about me or these words, but there's something very special about your presence. I pray that you would fill us by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that just that atmosphere and ambiance of the prayer room that's been burning for 10 days would make its way out of that door and into this place that you would fill each and every one of us with just the presence of the Holy Spirit. And would we truly enjoy you as your people? Would we not be guilty of like coming to you every now and again for the things that we want you to do for us as though you're some kind of cosmic genie? But will we be the kinds of people who all throughout our week, particularly on Sabbath, but all throughout our week, 
like laying hold of you, fixing our eyes on you, engaging desire and longing in our spirit to experience you, the living God. And I just encourage you, if you, um, as we've done these prayer rhythms and this sense, this uh, these visualizations to just lift your hands in the air with me in response to the Lord's uh, self-giving love towards you. I encourage you to like, it, you know, we talk about embodied spirituality, like the gratitude needs to come out of our mouths. Like our bodies need to respond to the embrace of God. So I just encourage you as we respond to his goodness and as we respond to the, the invitation to delight in him, to just let your body, your hands, your mouth, your lips, your voice know that you praise the living God, King Jesus. So as we sing, the team's gonna lead us and we're gonna also come to the tables of communion where we remember Jesus' sacrifice. So during this next song, go ahead and do that, but also just stay in this place of responding um, to the invitation to delight in God's goodness. In Jesus' name, we love you. Amen.